Now, this was something that I have wanted to consider for quite some time. And I went back through my notes of Sunday school. And I thought, well, maybe I was going to do this. I made this outline. I don't even remember when I made it, sometime last year. And because of the COVID interruptions, we did a couple of Sunday school classes on Bible survey. Then I studied creation. Then we had, you know, the COVID interruption for over a year. Then we got into the confession of faith. And for most of 2021 and most of this year, we went through the entirety of the 1689 Confession of Faith, and I never actually got to do this. So I thought, well, today, before I get into where hopefully we're going next, today I will address the issue of the Sermon on the Mount. So I think they, uh, Caleb and Anna need them. So there's handouts going around, which is basically an outline of the Sermon on the Mount. Now he has an introduction to the sermon in which he presents the description of those who live by the principles that he's about to teach them. And then he gets to the theme of the sermon which is the necessity of gospel holiness or gospel righteousness, gospel virtue. And he presents that introduction in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 20. And then he has his first point, which is the standard of gospel virtue or gospel holiness, which is the law of God obeyed from the heart and applied to the heart. And he opens up the standard of gospel virtue in the rest of chapter 5, chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. Then his second point is the focus of gospel virtue. Gospel virtue does not focus on the eyes of men, but gospel virtue focuses on the eye of God. Not on the favor of men or smile of men, but on the favor and smile of God. And he opens up this distinctive feature of gospel righteousness, gospel virtue, gospel holiness in Matthew 6, verses 1 to 18. Then his third point is about the goal or aim of gospel virtue and what it aims at, gospel righteousness, gospel holiness, aims at eternal inheritance. He opens up this aspect or feature of gospel holiness in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. So he talks about the focus, the eye and smile of God, the goal, eternal inheritance, the standard, the law of God applied to the heart. And then finally, In chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, he has his practical applications. And I find seven practical applications summarized in 7, 1 to 23, and then a peroration or summary conclusion where he drives it all home by stressing the vital importance of this message, the vital importance of gospel holiness. 
So he preaches about gospel holiness. And he's preaching not to the unconverted. But it's very important to understand that he's preaching this to his disciples. To those who have God as their heavenly father. Over and over again, he addresses them as God's children saved by grace. He's not telling unconverted people how to get saved. He's not saying to the unconverted, get saved by pursuing gospel holiness. That's not the context and message. But he is addressing those who are already saved. He's talking to his disciples, to those who are God's spiritual children saved by grace. And he is pressing on their consciences the necessity of gospel holiness, the necessity of genuine gospel virtue. So that's what he's talking about. That's the point and summary of the Sermon on the Mount. So first of all, look at how he introduces it by describing the the characteristics of those who live with gospel holiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after virtue, after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are they that have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men will reproach you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, What are you going to salt it with? It's from then on good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand and it shines to all those that are in the house. Even so, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who are the light of the world. Who are the salt of the earth. Who have their heavenly Father in heaven. And he's talking about a life of gospel holiness. Of good works. And these are the characteristics of those who live the kind of life to which he is exhorting them. Then he gets to the point of his message. Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law till all things are accomplished. Therefore, whosoever shall break one of the least of these commandments and teach men so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does and teaches them, 
he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven because I say to you, and this is the point, this is the theme of the whole sermon, because I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Gospel holiness is absolutely necessary. They were living in a society, and this was his concern, they were living in a society in which people did not understand what genuine holiness was. They had the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the people that were the most respected, full of religion, and they had a form of righteousness or a form of holiness that was external, not internal, was phony, and they were not on their way to heaven. They were on their way to hell. And they appeared righteous and holy to men. And he's warning them about the danger of this kind of hypocrisy. And he's teaching them about the necessity of genuine gospel holiness in order to go to heaven. That's the theme of the whole message. If all you had is the external, phony righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you're not on your way to heaven, you're on your way to hell, don't delude yourselves. What is necessary for heaven is genuine gospel righteousness, genuine gospel holiness. Don't be deceived. They were living in a society in which they needed that warning and exhortation about the necessity of genuine holiness in order to enter heaven. He's not teaching salvation or justification from sin by works. He's not denying salvation by grace. He's talking to those who have God as their heavenly father, who have been saved by grace, who have been delivered from sin by grace, and have a relationship to God as beloved children. And he warns them about the necessity of genuine holiness in a society marked by vain religion, a false kind of righteousness, which is external and not in the heart. And why true, genuine gospel holiness is essential to go to heaven. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. If by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Genuine godliness, genuine gospel holiness is absolutely essential to go to heaven. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says it to those who are the disciples of Christ. Okay? So that's his introduction. His first point, the standard of gospel holiness. Now, if you were desirous to make that point in a society that was characterized by a false idea of what integrity was, how do you think he'd go about it? Well, the way Jesus goes about it is he... He presents a series of contrasts between what they heard, the religious teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, the rabbinical traditions, and what the Bible really says, what Christ teaches. 
what he's saying about the, the right standard. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, that contrast characterizes this entire point. And the first focal point of the law of God, where he drives home this contrast, has to do with the sanctity of human life, murder and malice. And he opens that up first in verses 21 to 26. The second issue that he addresses is the issue of the sanctity of marriage and the issues of adultery and divorce and the contrasting teaching of the word of God and the rabbinical scribes and Pharisees and their traditions about marriage, adultery, and divorce. And the third issue is about the sanctity of truth, about swearing oaths and the contrast between what the false religious teachers were saying and what the word of God says. The fourth issue is the issue of retaliation. Verses 38 to 42. And the final issue is the issue of hatred. Verses 43 to 47. So there are various ways it could be outlined, but using a series of contrasts, he contrasts what the false religious teachers were saying. And the stuff they had heard from the time they were small, growing up, the kind of stuff that fueled the doctrines and practices of the scribes and Pharisees and gave rise to their false sense of religious hope and their practice of external religion. First of all, you have heard that it was said Don't commit physical murder. But what Christ says, mortifying malice in your heart and defamation coming out of your mouth. And the practical implications of it are to seek reconciliation before you go to worship or before you wind up in prison. The second issue, marriage and divorce. You have heard that it was said don't commit physical adultery. But what Christ says is mortify adulterous lust in your eyes and in your heart. And you heard that divorce on demand is not morally wrong, but legal if you keep the letter of the civil statute. What Christ says is that divorce and remarriage without biblical ground, and he mentions fornication, is morally wrong and a violation of the seventh commandment. Swearing oaths. What you heard them say is, don't swear falsely, but just to the Lord. What Christ says, don't do this. Tell the truth. Say what you mean, and mean what you say. With regard to retaliation, verses 38 to 42, what they heard was, you can retaliate according to the civil statute, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You can have a vindictive spirit as long as you do it legally. What Christ says is return good for evil. And he gives four illustrations, hitting, lawsuits, compulsion, and lending. And finally, the issue of hate. What you heard, they say, hating your enemies isn't morally wrong. What Christ says is love your enemies in order to reflect the common grace 
the genuine common grace of your heavenly Father. But that's a summary of the first point. Let me just read verses 43 and following. You have heard that it was said, you'll love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for them that persecute you. And this is why. That you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So again, he's talking to disciples. He's talking to God's spiritual children. That you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, and this is where he speaks about common grace. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the publicans do the same? And if you salute only your brothers, what do you more than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? Therefore, you should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that's the... That's a pretty brief, I suppose, summary of the contrast that Jesus draws. And his point is to contrast genuine gospel holiness from the false version of it that was inundating the society in which they lived. He didn't want them to be misled by the false teaching of scribes and Pharisees. And because of their false teaching, they were proud of themselves and filled with self-righteousness. And they thought as long as they kept these external rules that they made up, that they were okay. But he said the standard of genuine gospel holiness is not external rules made up by men. The standard of gospel holiness is God's holy word. And it's not just applied to external behavior. It's applied to your heart. So he specifically takes the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, and the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and applies them to the heart and shows what is the genuine standard of the law and word of God regarding the sanctity of life and marriage. And then he speaks about three specific applications of truth and retaliation and hate that were characteristic of the false teaching and behavior of the scribes and Pharisees. And they're, they're focused on the adherence to the letter of a legal statute and violating the spirit of the law and not understanding that morality is a matter of the heart and not adherence to the letter of a legal statute. Okay, that's the first point. Second point, the focus of gospel virtue. Gospel religious service is in contrast here with hypocrisy in religious devotion. The scribes and Pharisees were well known for their religious devotion and they displayed their religious devotion and religious service, and they were so proud of it. They made an open show of it. 
They did it openly in the sight of society. But what he says is that the focus of genuine, true gospel holiness, gospel virtue, in its religious devotion and service is not what people see. It's not about developing a reputation in the eyes of human beings. It's what God sees. It has to do not so much with looking good in people's eyes. It has to do with pleasing God in secret. What is called the fear of God. So, genuine gospel devotion and religious service. True virtue, gospel holiness has as its focus not the eyes of human beings, but God's smile, favor, and observation. And he addresses three aspects that are commonly associated with religious service or religious devotion. Benevolence, verses 1 to 4. Prayer, verses 5 to 15, and fasting, verses 16 to 18. So he addresses this issue of the focus of gospel virtue in Matthew chapter 6. And he starts out with benevolence, what's translated alms. And then he moves to prayer and then fasting. And you see the repeated theme about hypocrisy in contrast with the fear of God. Now, not some cringing dread of God, but the awareness that God is watching me, and I'm doing it so God sees. I don't care if people are watching or not. I'm not only praying when people are watching, I'm praying when only God is watching, because I'm praying to God. I'm not praying in order to get a reputation for being a man of oh, what a man. It's not what it's about. It's about God. Right, the first thing has to do with benevolence. Take heed that you do not your righteousness before men to be seen of them, for otherwise you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. So the focus of gospel holiness is not to be people but God. Let me give you three instances, he says, of this principle that the focus of genuine gospel virtue in its religious devotion and service is the eye of God. Therefore, when you do alms, that is, when you show benevolence to the poor and needy, don't sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have honor from men. Verily I say to you, they have received their reward. But you, when you show benevolence, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, that your benevolence may be in secret, and your father, who sees in secret, will recompense you. So, if you're going to do something to help somebody in need. You don't say, hey, buddy, da 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 watch me. I'm a generous, benevolent person. Watch. Oh, good grief. Doesn't it make you cringe just to hear it? 
Right? Of course it does. But this is, this is what he's warning us about, having that kind of attitude. You do it in secret and God sees it. And it isn't interesting that he says, your heavenly father will reward you. It's not wrong to want a reward from your heavenly father. That's perfectly okay. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I doing this in order to earn my way to heaven? No, good grief, no. We don't deserve it. There's enough sin in any good thing we ever did to damn us ten times over. The reward is all of grace and all of kindness. He is pleased to accept and reward. I'm quoting our confession. That which is sincere, though accompanied with all kinds of evil and imperfections and everything else. It's a gracious reward from a father full of grace and mercy. He rewards genuine gospel holiness, even though it's far from perfect. Isn't that wonderful? We do it so he sees it. And second illustration of this principle, the second uh, practical instance of this. And, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Because they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets. Why do they do that? That they may be seen of men. Verily I say to you, they've received their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your inner chamber. And when you shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will recompense you. And when you're praying, don't use vain repetitions like the Gentiles do because they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. Don't be like them because your father knows what you need before you ask. Therefore, pray after this man, our father, who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive men their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you don't forgive men neither will your heavenly father forgive you and then his third illustration third point moreover when you fast don't be like the hypocrites of a sad countenance because they disfigure their faces that they may be seen by people too fast. Verily I say to you, they've received their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that you may not be fast, but of your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will recompense you. Fasting, praying, showing benevolence, religious devotion, every time contrasted with hypocrisy. Hypocrites who do these things to be seen by people, and they receive their reward. People see them, and people say, oh, wow, what wonderful guys. What godly, generous, devote, devoted people. And they receive their reward. But don't you behave like that. 
Because gospel virtue, genuine gospel holiness in its religious service and devotion is not so much focused ultimately on what people see and hear and think. It's focused on God who sees in secret. And when God sees in secret, he recompenses the benevolence and the prayer and the fasting that accompany and express genuine gospel holiness. That's his second point. That makes sense? So first point, theme of the sermon, genuine gospel holiness in contrast to man-made pharisaic external rule-keeping is absolutely essential to go to heaven. First point, consider the standard of genuine gospel holiness, which is God's law, not man-made rules, God's law applied to the heart. Consider the focus of gospel holiness, which is not people's eyes, but the eye of God who sees in secret. Thirdly, consider, finally, the ultimate goal of gospel holiness, which is God's eternal inheritance. He has an exhortation and then an implication. The exhortation with regard to the goal of gospel virtue is to store up treasure not on earth with carnal materialism but in heaven and the implication of this if you are living with the goal of storing up for yourself treasure in heaven and in the new heavens and earth forever and ever the implication is don't worry with carnal anxiety about the things you need on earth God will take care of them. He will take care of you. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust thus consume and where thieves don't break through or steal. Because where your treasure is there will your heart be too. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eyes single, your whole body's full of light. But if your eyes evil, your whole body's full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Nobody can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other or cling to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and riches. Can't happen that way. Your life can't be about materialism. And see, ultimately, the ultimate aim of that external false religion and hypocrisy was materialistic gain. They were greedy people. In another passage, the Phar Luke interposes the Pharisees who were all lovers of money scoffed at what Jesus was saying. Jesus knew what was really motivating this stuff was greed, was materialism. 
Genuine religion is not about accumulating things for yourself, all the material blessings of this life. It's about accumulating glory and eternal reward and treasure in the world to come. That's its motive, aim, and goal. In contrast with the greed and materialism that fueled the external false hypocritical religion of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he has a practical application. He says, now this has a very concrete practical implication. If it's true, that you are ultimately pursuing treasure in heaven, then this is what it implies. This is why I say to you, therefore I say to you, this is why, don't be anxious for your life. So if if what you're pursuing ultimately is glory in heaven, then don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or for your body, what you're going to wear, what you're going to put on. Isn't the life more than the food and the body than the clothing? Behold the birds of the heaven. They don't sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. And your heavenly Father, again, he's talking to those who are right with God, who are God's spiritual children, saved by grace. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you of much more value than they? God's children much more valuable than birds. If God feeds the birds, isn't he going to take care of his own children? But he's saved by grace. And then he talks about it's totally impractical. Which of you, by being carnally anxious, which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to the measure of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they don't toil, neither do they spin. But I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory wasn't clothed like one of these. But if God does so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or Wherewithal will we be clothed? Because after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Because your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, genuine gospel holiness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, Don't be anxious about tomorrow, because the morrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. So he draws out this implication of what's called heavenly-mindedness, or having your treasure in heaven, having the goal of your life to be pursuing a genuine great treasure in the world to come. So those are his three points. The theme of the sermon... Genuine gospel holiness, the necessity of gospel holiness. The first point, the standard of gospel virtue, God's law from the heart. The second point, the focus of gospel virtue, God's eye and favor. And thirdly, the goal 
of gospel virtue, God's eternal inheritance, treasure in heaven. And in 7, 1 to 23, he opens up practical applications. First application, don't judge people hypocritically. One of the characteristics of the Pharisees and their false religion was their hypocritical judgment of others. Judge not that you be not judged. The second one, the second application is to show religious discernment. Don't throw pearls to pigs. Seven, six. Third, confident prayer. Those that live in genuine gospel holiness and realize that they're God's children, they pray with a good conscience, with confidence that God will hear and answer their prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Your heavenly Father will give good things to those that ask. Then this fourth application is gospel holiness in a nutshell. If you could sum up the substance of gospel holiness in a phrase, what would it be? Well, it's been called the golden rule. Verse 12, all things therefore whatsoever that you would that men do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This sums up gospel holiness in a nutshell. The fifth application is to face how rare this genuine gospel holiness really is. Verses 13 and 14. Narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to life. And then he builds on that the danger of false teachers. He's saying you're living in a society that's being led astray. Don't be led astray by false teachers and false prophets. And then finally he warns them how absolutely essential this is. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Living a life of genuine gospel holiness is absolutely essential to going to heaven. It's not optional. It's essential. And that's his final application. This is not optional. This is absolutely necessary to enter into glory. So watch out for judging people hypocritically. Show religious discernment. Don't throw pearls to pigs. They don't appreciate it. Have confidence in your prayer that when you are walking with a good conscience and gospel holiness as God's children, God will hear and give every good thing that you need. Let me summarize virtue in a nutshell, the golden rule. Recognize how rare genuine gospel holiness really is. Face the danger of false teachers to lead you astray and don't give in to it. Beware of people that tell you something else. That gospel holiness isn't really necessary. And don't listen to false teachers because your soul could be destroyed by false teaching and heresy. And finally, face the fact that it's absolutely necessary. Finally, he sums up in his summary, his conclusion. He uses an illustration to t tell his disciples the tremendous importance of this message. Therefore, this is how important it is. Here's what happens if you listen to me 
and take to heart what I taught you in this message. This is my bottom line. Everyone, therefore, that hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it didn't fall because it was built on a rock. And everyone that hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and smote on that house, and it fell, and great was the fall thereof. And when the multitudes heard this, it said that it came to pass when Jesus finished these words, the multitude was astonished at his teaching because he taught them as someone who had authority and not like the scribes. So that's the point of the sermon. What is it? It is the necessity of gospel holiness. The three points, the standard, the focus, and the goal of gospel holiness, seven practical applications, and a conclusion. This is not a sermon that you just listen to and say, yeah. But uh, the welfare or ruin of your life, whether your life is a success or a failure, depends on whether you listen to what Jesus says. That's how he ended the message.